0: This is Antonia from sunny Sarasota, Florida, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know, there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com/dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups, and you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can support the show on our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. And in the month of November, your bonus episode was the murders of wealthy San Juan Capistrano couple Brad and Andra Sachs. The $5 bonus was a vacation series discussion regarding the friends who assisted Conrad Roy and Chandra Brown in taking their own lives. And we managed to squeeze in a mini bonus about the life and death of Hollywood Boulevard sidewalk superhero Christopher Dennis. This week, I'd like to thank Carrie. Jennifer R., Stacy M., Brooke G., and Jeff and Lee for signing up. I have finally been able to catch up on mailing out thank you cards and Patreon perks for everyone. I was backed up a couple of months, so for those of you who signed up in September and October, you should be receiving your card soon if you haven't already. And I also got those hashtag free Fred button giveaways sent out also as well. And if you're not interested in a monthly donation, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. And if you do decide to support the show through PayPal, you can get some perks as well. You just need to include your mailing information in the notes included with your donation. Every little bit helps in keeping us moving forward with more and more content. So thank you. And one more thing before we go on with the show, if you recall earlier this year, I had the honor of being asked to narrate the sci-fi thriller, A Sickness in Time by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle. It's available pretty much on every podcast directory, and if you enjoyed that, then you'll be glad to know that M.F. Thomas has a new book coming out in December entitled Arcade. It's a gripping story of post-apocalyptic Silicon Valley. Those who have read Arcade have said it will definitely appeal to anyone who enjoyed Ready Player One, Alien, and Interstellar. And if you were one of those who enjoyed her first two books, Seeing by Moonlight, which is also available in podcast form, and A Sickness in Time, MF Thomas wanted to give you a chance to get an advanced reader's copy. So here is his request. He'd like to send you a copy of Arcade and would like you to write a review. He'd like to have at least 200 reviews posted online when the book is released. If you'd like to participate, you'll get a free copy and some cool arcade swag. Then during the first weeks of December, you could write a review on Amazon, iTunes, or Goodreads, and use your social media accounts to share a picture of your book and your thoughts. To get started, visit www.mfthomasauthor.com arc hyphen sign up. Or email him with your mailing address at mft9 at iCloud.com and as the launch date of the book approaches, you'll be kept updated on some other events that he has planned. And Dreamers, I will post the links to all of these things that I've mentioned on the show notes and on California Dreaming social media. About nine or ten months ago, I shared a story about a feud between neighbors. John Kenny. And Elizabeth and Mel Grimes in episode 77, entitled The Tale of Broken Fences. It was a clash between two families who lived very different lifestyles, forced to share some common space, but they were unable to get along or agree on anything. Things escalated and it turned deadly. It was a story that was as sad as it was senseless, because in the end, two families were destroyed. Essentially over a patch of land, which had been designated as an easement because it was necessary for both parties to cross over this area of land in order to access both of their driveways. While the land actually was on the property of one of them, the other was allowed to drive over it to get into their driveway. It turned into a big, huge mess when the property owner attempted to make it impossible for that specific piece of land to be used essentially blocking his neighbors from accessing their driveway. It was petty. So I think I talked about my neighborly problems in that episode. It might have been another one because the last place that I lived, I had some neighbor problems. It was a month after that episode that we moved to Huntington Beach, and I have not had any issues with neighbors since. So I asked in the Facebook group if anyone wanted to tell us about any of their neighbor horror stories And I am going to include those, but it's going to have to be a part of an addendum episode to this because this just ran too long and I'm sort of running out of time. So if you haven't already guessed, today we're going to talk about neighbors. And what makes this particular story unique is who this neighbor was and how the behavior seemed to come completely out of left field. And that is what is going to be at the heart of this 118th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of neighborly brutality. Our story today takes place in the city of Altadena, California. Situated at the foot of the San Gabriel Mountain Range, directly north of Pasadena, it is an unincorporated census-designated area in Los Angeles County, located about 14 miles or 23 kilometers away from downtown Los Angeles. And in early 2001, in one particular neighborhood, on one particular block, it seemed as though all the families that moved in were really all of a similar mindset when it came to what a neighbor should be. Every single one of them got along fantastically. And that isn't always a thing, right? To get that lucky. With every house that you pass, you know you have a good, dependable friend when you need one. They were all like that. Everyone enjoyed socializing. Everyone was so friendly. Everyone had kids. So there was always someone around to have a play date with. I even saw one interview with one of the neighbors who said that the entire block was like one big happy family. I personally have never experienced a dynamic quite like that, but I will say when my daughter was younger, I did make it a point to get to know the neighbors who had children close to her age because the kids would want to go outside or get together at someone's house to play, but it wasn't like we, the parents, were all like best friends or whatever. It wasn't anything like that, and to be honest, I don't even think I would fit into a neighborhood like that anyway. But for these neighbors, their little corner of Altadena, California, was the perfect little enclave to raise their families. And one of those couples that enjoyed this neighborhood was John and Melanie Hamilton. They both grew up in Altadena and were completely content to stay and raise their own family in the same area. Melanie described it in an interview as the best neighborhood in the world. And they were very close friends with another couple on the block, Michael and Crystal Neron. I do need to mention here at the onset that John and Melanie and Michael and Crystal are both interracial couples. John and Mike are white. Melanie and Crystal are African American. It's going to be an important component later on in our story. Anyway, it seemed as though that had been one of the draws to this particular neighborhood or maybe it was just pure coincidence that there just so happened to be about six interracial couples living on the same block. The house that was next door to John and Melanie's had been on the market for about three months and while it was up for sale, nobody was living in it. But by March of 2001, the house had been sold and the neighbors began noticing a new couple moving in. Ersie and Sharon Henry, not an interracial couple as they were both African-American. They also had a son who was 13 years old at the time. And the Hamiltons, who would now be sharing a fence with the Henrys, made it a point to introduce themselves and welcome them to the neighborhood. And they look forward to introducing them to their group of friends and neighbors that extended up and down the street. And the Henrys' son was also close in age to the Hamiltons, so they were thrilled at the prospect of not only themselves making new friends, but also their kids. And to make things even better, Ersie Henry was a member of the Los Angeles Police Department, so everyone felt that this was an incredibly great addition to their neighborhood, having a police officer so close by. And it didn't take long for the Henry son and the Hamilton son to become friends. The Hamilton's boy had him over, And he had gone over to the guest to the Henrys' house as well, and it was really nice to know that he was so close and enjoying a new friendship. So as their boys were getting to know each other, the Hamiltons definitely wanted to get to know the Henrys better as well. Because there was hardly a weekend that would go by that at least one of the neighbors had a thing going on, whether it was a party, or a get-together, or a barbecue... It was always something, and everyone wanted the newest addition to the block to feel welcome to join. So the next party that the Hamiltons had at their place, they invited the Henrys, but they did not attend. And the more the Hamiltons got to know the Henrys, they came to realize that the couple was a little bit more private and reserved than the rest of them. They also thought that they were going to need a little bit more time to get settled, to get more comfortable, and to get to know everyone a little bit better. The Hamiltons figured the Henrys would eventually come around. It's sort of the way things worked on their block. Nobody stayed a stranger for long. And Melanie Hamilton was right. When the ladies had their next get-together, Sharon Henry was invited and she did show up this time. And their whole group immediately took a liking to her. She was very outgoing and friendly and social. She loved to talk and laugh. So they were really excited that they at least have won her over. But as for her husband, Ersie, he was proving to be a little bit more of a tough nut to crack. The neighbors were getting the sense that he was a bit disconcerted by their get-togethers. They thought maybe it was a little bit too loud or boisterous. Maybe the laughter, all the chatter, all the music, it was just too much. But they also tried to understand the nature of Ursi's job as an LAPD police officer. Working in one of the largest forces in one of the largest cities in the country can't be easy. He's a patrol officer, so he's out there dealing with who knows what sorts of characters day in and day out. It's one of the most high-stress jobs out there. And it's understandable the kinds of pressure Ursi's job puts on not only him, but his family as well. And his hours were all over the place and they were long. So did Ursi simply want to come home to some peace and quiet so he could rest up and recharge for his next day out on the streets? Of course he did. So having moved into a neighborhood such as this one that was so extremely social was not exactly a good fit for Ursi. Then finally one evening when the noise coming from the backyard of the Hamilton's home was just too much for Ursi to deal with, Instead of doing the neighborly thing and going over there to talk to them about it or explain that he needed to get some sleep, he called the police and made a noise complaint. The officers showed up at the Hamilton's house and they were told that it was in fact Ursie Henry that had called to complain. And the Hamiltons felt bad. You know, they didn't want to be that neighbor that bothers you and causes you all sorts of disturbances. So in the spirit of wanting to get along they decided that they would try to dial it down a little bit. Maybe have their gatherings at someone else's house that wasn't right next door to Ercey. However, Ercey's attempts at shutting down his neighbors' social gatherings isn't going to stop with just this one phone call to the cops. So come Memorial Day 2001, just two or three months after the Henrys moved into the neighborhood, Crystal Nerone was walking from her place to the Hamilton's place with her son. They were getting ready to have their usual holiday party. As she passed by, she saw Ursi outside washing his car. She walked up and said, Oh, hey, Ursi, how are you? Your lawn is really coming along great. He was quiet for a moment before he uttered these words to her and her son. Disgusting mixed kid. Not really sure she was hearing him right. Crystal said, what? And he repeated under his breath. What a disgusting mixed kid. Crystal grabbed her son's hand and walked away as fast as she could. She could not believe that he had just said something so mean and so racist to a child. And this coming from a police officer. Crystal literally could not believe what she just heard. She was stunned at the way that he spoke to her and her child. Now remember, most of the neighbors admittedly don't know the Henrys very well, but they were happy from the start that their new neighbor was a cop and accepted that because of that, he needed more time to himself unlike the rest of them who socialized pretty regularly. But once Crystal had that encounter with Ursie, as she headed over to the Hamiltons, her entire perception of him changed. She was now certain that he wasn't this upstanding officer of the law that everyone saw him as. She now viewed him as a racist. And because of that, him being in the neighborhood was very troubling for her. So when it came time for the party that afternoon and into the evening, Crystal told everyone what Ursie had said to her and her son. And they didn't believe her. They told her, you must have misheard him or misunderstood what he was saying because they were like, no way. This is our neighbor. He's the police officer. Being part of and working with the community is an essential part of that. Crystal must have been mistaken. But she knew what she heard. So there was nothing that she could do about trying to convince her friends, her neighbors, and even her own husband that she isn't crazy. She heard what she heard. So she just figured, well, I guess I'm going to be the only one who has gotten this preview of what Ersie Henry is really like behind that facade he has put out there that has everyone fooled, apparently. None of them were willing to let go of the fact that he's their neighbor, he's a cop, he's one of the good guys, and he's on their side. Everyone just felt much safer having him living amongst them. They felt protected. They felt their children were much safer with him there. John Hamilton even recalled an incident where there was a creeper van that nobody recognized parked along their street with the guy just sitting in the driver's seat. Just parked there. No signage on the van. Nothing. The neighbor started alerting everyone else along the block about it. And when Ersie heard, he walked right out there with a flashlight, confronted the guy, and he just drove off. So definitely a sense of security with him around, but not Crystal. It was clear that no one else had a problem with Ursi, nor did they want to have problems with him. It was seriously like having a 24-hour security guard in the neighborhood. And she was like, no, he verbally attacked her son, just a child for no reason other than the fact that he is of mixed race. And from that point forward, Crystal no longer trusted Officer Ursie Henry. She had gotten a first-hand look at his true colors, and she didn't care how much her friends or even her own husband tried to convince her that she was mistaken. She knew all she needed to know. It wasn't too long after that incident had occurred that the next party the neighbors had, Ursie actually attended with his wife, Sharon. They thought, wow, okay, he's really starting to loosen up a little bit. He was talkative, he was getting to know the other couples, being really social, like he had been a part of their group all along here. He was nearly being the life of the party, actually. Out there by the bonfire, playing the congas for everyone. It was such a switch from the last party, where he'd actually called the cops on them. But Crystal she wasn't buying what Ursi was trying to sell here. Not for a minute. She was never going to let go of that comment that he made about her son being a disgusting mixed child. I mean, how could she, right? No matter how much Ursi tried to be a part of their group, she wasn't buying it. But since nobody believed her, all she could do was watch from afar and keep her eyes on him until others started to see it too. Then as a little bit of time passed and for some reason the Hamilton son had started pulling away from hanging out with the Henry son. When this happened, it really bothered Ersie. For whatever reason he took it as a personal slight against him. I mean for John, it was a neighborhood full of kids. It was really up to his son who he wanted to hang out with and who he didn't want to. It was never really that big of a deal for the Hamiltons as their son was pretty much like everyone else. He was social and he got along easily and he was friendly with pretty much everyone. But for Ersie, it was a big deal. So much so that he had come outside one afternoon when Melanie was just pulling up to her house and confronted her in her driveway. Just got in her face, demanding to know if she told her son to not play with his son. And what made that moment so awkward was the fact that it was obvious that Ursi was severely agitated about the whole thing. And it was like he was confronting her about something that was really serious. Yet it all had to do with their kids hanging out together or not hanging out. And to Melanie, she was like, are we really having this conversation right now? Because it seems so absurd to her. And she explained to Ursi that she would not go out of her way to tell her son to stop playing with his son but he's free to pick and choose his own friends and he snapped back at her and said well if you did do that it would be a huge mistake melanie was pretty shaken up by the entire confrontation Ursie was very intimidating and he was all up in her face and you know her husband john there's only so much that he could do He didn't like that Ursi had spoken to his wife like that, but at the same time, Ursi is a very large man. He's a cop and their neighbors, and he just thought it would be best, at least for now, to just try and let this go and move past it. It looked as though this was going to have to be one of those neighbor situations where, you know, they're living next door to each other, the Henrys and the Hamiltons, and getting along is going to be a challenge. And perhaps the best course of action was to do what they could to leave each other alone and to stay out of each other's way. It sounds simple, but it's not exactly going to be. At least, not for the Hamiltons. Out in the front yard area of John and Melanie's home, they had three relatively large trees that leaves dropped from constantly. And their son, Michael, one of his chores was to rake up the leaves each afternoon when he got home from school. But what Ursie Henry started doing was he would watch Michael as he finished up picking up all the leaves. And when he was done, he would grab his leaf blower and start blowing all the leaves on his yard over into the Hamilton's yard that Michael had just cleared. Michael went into the house and complained to his parents that Mr. Henry was blowing all these leaves into their yard every time he finishes breaking them up. So John went out there to confront Ursi about this. Like, why are you acting like this towards a kid? And Ursi just exploded. Who the hell do you think you are? This is my property. I can do whatever the hell I want. And the whole thing escalated into a full-blown shouting match between the two men, right there in front of John's son. And you know, this is coming from Ursi the sort of behavior from someone who insisted on having his peace and quiet on his time off, and he's really doing everything that he can, seemingly, to instigate problems. That night, John sat his family down and said, Look, we don't want to have any more problems with this guy. There's something really serious going on with him, and we just have to steer clear. He stays on his side of the fence. We stay on ours. The next issue that Ursie Henry raised had to do with the fence that separated his property from the Hamilton's property. He began insisting that the fence was built on his property. It had crossed over at least four to six inches, and he wanted it taken down. John told him, you know what? This fence has been in place long before you ever showed up in the neighborhood. If you got a problem with it, then you go and pay to have the land surveyed again. He wasn't taking the fence down. He wasn't going to move it. And he told Ersie, It's your issue. You deal with it. This argument also escalated into a shouting match between the two men, and this time, the whole neighborhood could hear it. And, well, John had told Ursie to deal with the fence, so that's exactly what Ersie was prepared to do. I'll talk more about the dispute over the fence in a moment, I want to go over the court documents that pretty much outlined a chronology of the fighting between the Henrys and the Hamiltons that went on over the next five years. Both John Hamilton and Ursi Henry engaged in innumerable acts that were meant to harass and disturb each other's lives. However, because Ursi was most often the aggressor and he was the one who was a member of law enforcement, it was his conduct that was laid out more specifically when these matters were raised in court some years later. I've already mentioned Ursi blowing the leaves and debris from his property onto the Hamilton's property, usually after their son had just finished up raking up all the leaves. In order to try and block the leaves from being blown over into his yard, John decided to allow the grass to grow long along this area of his property that was adjacent to Henry's. Not to be outdone, Ursi took it upon himself to either mow the grass back down or he applied weed killer to the area so that he would be able to continue to blow the leaves over into the Hamilton's yard. John's next course of action was to install chicken wire along the property line so he could prevent Ursi from doing it anymore. At which point Ursi started gathering up the leaves on his side of the yard and tossing them over the chicken wire onto the Hamilton's property. John would then go out there, gather up the leaves again, and toss them back over onto the Henry property. And Ursy would just go out there and do it again. And I know, this all sounds really petty and immature, but it gets worse. Ursy did not limit his harassment to John and Melanie. He also started targeting the Hamilton's two children. They had a son and a daughter. Ursy could be heard yelling profanities, taunts and racial slurs and insults at John and Melanie while they were in the company of their children. Henry would regularly call John a white boy and Melanie a fake black wannabe white bitch, also in front of their children. There was one time Ursie noticed the Hamilton's daughter outside, who was 11 at the time, and he proceeded to stick his tongue out at her and lick his lips. On another occasion, Ursie approached the Hamilton's son, who was 13 years old at the time, and confronted him and accused him of stealing from his son. Ursi had also hired some guys to do some work on his house, at which point he instructed them to spray paint PC-602 and PC-594 on the side of the fence that was on his property facing the Hamilton's property. What these penal code sections were related to trespassing and vandalism, which were two of the crimes Ursi had accused John of. He also had these workers spray paint the words, No swingers, no freaks, what, Weird and no slug on the fence. And I'm not quite sure what he meant by no slug. Closing in on one year since the Henrys moved in, at the beginning of 2002, John started finding Marlboro cigarette butts on his property. He started seeing two or three, and eventually the numbers of butts increased to more than a dozen a day. This, of course, was the brand of cigarette that Irsy smoked, and he was seen at least one time dropping cigarette butts onto the Hamiltons' property. The Hamiltons also found eggs having been thrown and splattered onto their property no less than a dozen times, including one time when they had just had their driveway resurfaced. Based on the pattern of the egg splatter, it was clear that they were being tossed from the direction of the Henry property. However, no one ever actually witnessed Ersie throwing the eggs at their home but also no other homes in the area ever reported having their homes pelted with eggs. Eventually, the attacks between John Hamilton and Ursi Henry became such a regular occurrence that they both decided to install video surveillance equipment on their properties. John did capture several of Ursi's attacks and acts of vandalism, including Ursi pulling down the boards of the fence that separated their properties. And there was an occasion where Ursi ran over one of the Hamilton's trash cans dragging it several feet down the street and destroying it. Both John and Ersie applied for and were given restraining orders against one another, but it did little to settle things down between the men. They both continued to frequently call the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department to file complaints against one another, and it had become so frequent and problematic that the Sheriff's Department started having briefs about them specifically. And because Ercey was an LAPD officer, every time they received a call about a dispute between the two, a supervisor had to be sent out for every call, not just a regular sheriff's deputy. And when it came to Ercey's calls, he wasn't just calling the local sheriff. He started calling the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. And many of his calls were found to be unsubstantiated allegations that he was trying to make against the Hamiltons. On one occasion when the Hamilton's automatic sprinklers turned on and some of the water landed on Ursi's car, this prompted him to call the district attorney's office and attempt to file a vandalism complaint against the Hamiltons. This would eventually become problematic for Ursi, these frivolous complaints later on down the line. Okay, so that issue that arose between the neighbors involving the fence that divided the property line between the Hamiltons and the Henrys, let's get more into that. Ursa began demanding that the fence be taken down, insisting that it was on his property. John was like, if you want to hire a surveyor to come out and do it and outline the property lines once again, be his guest. He wasn't having anything to do with it. So, Ursi did hire a surveyor and it was determined that a portion of the fence was indeed on the Henry's property line. In July of 2002, Ursi sued the Hamiltons over the construction of the fence that crossed onto his property and the Hamilton's insurance carrier settled and agreed to pay Ursi $6,500. But Ursi wasn't done. There was still a matter of taking the fence down, And I'm not exactly sure what Ursi was supposed to do with the settlement money that he got from the insurance company. I'm assuming that he was supposedly going to have the fence taken down and replaced so that it can be repositioned directly on the property line. Typically, homeowners reach an agreement about a shared fence and they split the cost. But I'm sure nobody saw these neighbors coming to terms on anything. So most likely it was all going to be left up to Ursi if he would just take the money or if he was going to leave the fence, or if he was going to have it taken down and have a new fence installed. But Ursi, it seemed like he had another plan in mind. One afternoon, Melanie was at work, John was out of town, and their son was home by himself at the time when he suddenly heard and saw Ursi Henry tearing down the fence himself. He called up his mom, and he was telling her that Ursi was ripping out the fence, and it was scaring him. He was, like, really afraid. Melanie called Crystal, and I mean, there really isn't anything that anyone could do. Ersi was tearing down the fence piece by piece, and it was clear he was doing it filled with a lot of rage and anger. And Crystal, her husband Michael, and other neighbors came outside to see Ursie literally ripping this fence apart with his bare hands. And neighbor Michael Nerone finally spoke up, and he was like, you know, what are you doing? What's going on here? And Ursi just yelled at him, just stay away. This fence is on my property. I'm taking it down. And if you set foot on my property, I'll have you arrested. And Michael just threw his hands up and was like, okay, dude, like whatever. So his wife, Crystal, spoke up. And remember, she's the one that Ursi had said that her son was a disgusting mixed kid and nobody believed her, right? She started yelling at Ursi, this is crazy. You're acting like a crazy man. Have you lost your mind? And he stopped and he looked at her and said, yeah, that's what I expect from you married to a white man. And Michael was like, what the hell did you just say? And Ursi just told him to his face, I never liked you in the first place. And it was finally clear to everyone in that moment that Crystal had been right all along. She had insisted she heard what she heard, yet nobody believed her that their new neighbor, the police officer, was actually a racist. But they all knew it now. He had said what he said in front of everyone, and everyone heard it for themselves. The sheriffs were called again, but there really wasn't anything that they could do to get involved. This was a civil matter. Anything that has to do with disputes over property is out of their jurisdiction. So where does this leave the Hamiltons and all their neighbors? Well, essentially, they're just kind of stuck. They're being bullied and terrified by a neighbor who happens to be a cop, and it really doesn't get any worse than that if you're these neighbors. The person who's supposed to protect and serve is the one causing all of these problems, and doing so by using fear and intimidation tactics. The neighbors began to feel as though that they had no one to turn to, because to them, who are you supposed to call if it's actually the police causing your problems? Well, after mulling it over, the neighbors decided that there had to be a protocol in place when it came to dealing with problematic police officers. There had to be some course of action that they would be able to take because police officers like Ersie Henry should not be able to behave in this matter with impunity. Having a badge doesn't mean that this guy gets to go around harassing people as he sees fit just because he feels like it, nor should he be allowed to get away with it so they decided to try and go above Ursi's head and speak to his superior officers about the problems that he's causing in the neighborhood. They thought maybe if they got in touch with someone higher up in the LAPD that there was something that they could do to assist them with Ursi's conduct when he wasn't on duty. So several of the neighbors who had had first-hand interactions with Ursi and witnessed many of the ways in which he had conducted himself were actually asked to come into Ursi's captain's office to have a meeting with him about their situation. They really thought that the best course of action was to do things the right way and do it by the book. It wasn't going to help them at all if they tried to stoop to Ursi's levels. If anything, it was only going to make things worse for them and give him more ammunition against them. And once they had their meeting with his captain and they laid out all the issues that they'd been having with him, They described leaving the meeting feeling as though that they'd been heard and they'd gotten their point across. And they'd really felt good about the whole thing at this point. Ursi's captain assigned two detectives to investigate further into what was going on between all the neighbors. Everyone who had any information or had experienced any of the harassment or had any sort of interaction or encounter with Ursi was interviewed. The detective showed up at everyone's house, spoke to each of them individually, and got their statements. They even interviewed the sheriff's department officers and supervisors that had been called numerous times to the neighborhood for the various complaints and reports that had been filed ever since this had all started. Though they could not be certain, everyone was pretty sure that Ursi knew what was going on. Whether he heard it through the grapevine or if he noticed the detectives going door-to-door and talking to everyone but him, he just had to know that something was up. And he made it clear that he knew because not too long after they were all interviewed, the Hamiltons walked out of their house one morning to find that their vehicle had been vandalized, spray-painted with obscenities, covered in eggs, and tires were slashed. The neighbors were coming to realize that if they were going to take any action against Ursie. It was only going to cause him to escalate his behaviors. The Hamiltons contacted the sheriff to report the vandalism, but as always, there was no definitive proof that Irsy was the one responsible for it. And to be honest, the sheriff had to admit it was hard to believe that the things that were happening to the Hamiltons were being done by an off-duty police officer. They just couldn't fathom that somebody with Irsy's rank and 20 years under his belt with the LAPD, would engage in behavior such as this. So on top of having no proof, the things that were going on were so incredulous, there were really doubts that Ursie Henry was the one responsible. It was following this vandalism incident that both the Henrys and the Hamiltons obtained their restraining orders against each other. And again, the Hamiltons figured, okay, We're going to do things the right way. We got this restraining order. He has his. Maybe now things will get back to some semblance of normalcy. And they keep thinking, you know, this guy is a police officer, but he isn't above the law and he isn't above the boundaries of the restraining order. They were not to say a word to one another if they encountered each other outside. They weren't even supposed to exchange glances, if that's even possible, There was to be absolutely no form of communication, verbal, written, phone, or otherwise, at all. But it actually did not stop Ursi from creating other forms of harassment from his side of the fence. For starters, he began with the eggs again, lobbing them onto the Hamilton's property. A neighbor had even witnessed one egg coming flying over the fence one afternoon when she was sitting on the patio talking with Melanie. Then the things being lobbed over escalated to rocks and then bricks and wooden boards. Ursie had spray-painted more derogatory things on the side of the fence facing the Hamilton's property. Some of the things coming over the fence began hitting their house, landing on their roof, and resulting in at least six or seven shattered window panes. All of this with their restraining orders in full effect. So for the Hamiltons, a real fear began setting in. And this neighbor of theirs was so unrelenting. They started thinking he's never going to stop. He's so obsessed with disrupting their lives and that it's going to keep happening and happening over and over again. And who knows how long it's going to take for this all to escalate to the point where Ursie Henry actually lashes out at one or more of them physically. And there was still no real hard proof that Ursie was doing all of these things to their home. And then to make matters even worse, about two weeks after they had spoken to Ursie's captain, the Hamiltons received a notice from the department investigating the claims that they had made. The letter indicated that they had completed their investigation and that they had arrived at the conclusion that the things that the neighbors had described that were happening actually didn't happen. None of the incidents they reported took place, according to them, essentially telling the Hamiltons and all their neighbors that they were making the whole thing up. So now, more than ever before, the neighbors felt as though they had no one on their side in their dealings with Ursi Henry. And once Ursi was officially cleared of any and all charges against him, he was able to turn the entire narrative around to make himself out to be the victim in all this, that he was the one being harassed by everyone else. Not only that, it only made Ursi feel more validated, like he had won this war. He could do whatever he wanted, and nobody was going to do anything to stop it. And he made sure that everyone knew that he knew he was above the law, and there wasn't anything that anyone could do. And it wasn't too long after Ursi was cleared of any and all wrongdoing that he began escalating his harassment campaign even more. And it wasn't only during the day. He began intruding into their lives at night. Ursi went and had these floodlights set up on the side of his house and they were trained directly into the bedroom windows of the Hamiltons and their kids. Melanie described the lights being just as bright as if the sun were rising. But it was the middle of the night, all night long, disrupting their sleep. It had gotten to a point where Ursie was going beyond just the ongoing feuding and disputing between the neighbors. This felt so intrusive and invasive. It was Ursie's way of injecting himself into every single corner of their lives. And it was happening every night. John went back to the sheriff again. But again, all that was going to amount to was more of he said, she said. They were told if they were going to want to try and prove their case, the Hamiltons were going to have to take measures beyond making their reports. So the sheriff was able to convince John that his best bet was going to be installing video surveillance cameras around his property. And John thought, okay, yeah. Just the presence of the video cameras installed on the exterior of his home might just be enough of a deterrent for Ersie to knock off all the crazy things that he'd been doing, knowing now that all of it was going to be captured on video. But boy, was he wrong. It didn't seem to deter Ersie from anything. As a matter of fact, when looking back on some of the videos that they had captured, the Hamiltons noticed some even more bizarre and disturbing things going on with Ersie that only heightened their concern. He would stand in front of the Hamilton's home, just staring at their front door. He wouldn't do anything. He'd just stand there, staring. He would go stand on the side of their house and gaze over into the yard. He'd be smoking or spitting or just staring. He'd pull some of the boards down off the fence and stick his head through and peer into their yard. He'd stand behind trees or behind utility poles, seemingly doing nothing but looking at their house. And all of this stuff the Hamiltons caught on their surveillance video, but Ursi still wasn't actually doing anything. And he knew everything that he was doing was being recorded, so it was as if he spent more time lingering and loitering and watching so the cameras would capture him doing nothing. Then one afternoon, John was outside watering his lawn when Ursi pulled up in his vehicle, right where he was standing. Ursi yelled something at John. He wasn't clear what he had said, at which point Ursi spit on him and sped away. John became so angry and disgusted. Melanie described him literally as shaking. He was so mad. But knowing what she knew about Ursi, all she could think was this was a tactic on Irsy's part to try to drive John to a point where he was going to lash out at Irsy, giving him an excuse to go on the defensive. It was clear that John was reaching a breaking point and everyone could see it. His wife, his neighbors. To them, they were convinced that Irsy was doing everything he could to try and push John over the edge. And he was getting close. And for his wife, Melanie... She was really worried for John and his safety. She knew that it was inevitable that her their paths were going to cross pretty much on a regular basis. Restraining orders be damned, they continued to have heated exchanges and each one seemed worse than the previous. It was like living in a pressure cooker, and it was only going to be a matter of time before this exploded. And Melanie was very nervous for things between John and Ersie to reach that boiling point. Well, things did escalate by way of yet another confrontation. But it would not be between Ersie and John. It would be between Ersie and Michael Nerone instead. If you recall, he's Crystal's husband. She was the first one to get the glimpse of what Ersie Henry was really like when she called her son a disgusting mixed kid as they walked past his house. So her husband Michael was jogging up the street, and as he's going along, he spotted someone in the distance walking in his direction. As he jogged closer, he began to realize that it was Ursi, and right away he could tell that they were going to have words. Ursi approached him and began attacking him verbally. As you know, Ursi had already told Michael that he does not like him. Remember, Michael is white and his wife is black and for whatever reason, this bothers Ursi to no end. So the confrontation turned into a yelling match between the two men. And Michael, you know, he is obviously no match for the larger Ursi and on top of everything else, he's also a trained law enforcement officer. He's there on his own with Ursi in his face, yelling and there's nobody else around nearby to help. So finally... Irsy just hauled off and started punching Michael in the face. After seven or eight blows, Michael fell to the ground and was bleeding from at least one open wound. That was the last straw. Michael reported the attack to law enforcement. And finally, the LAPD decided that they needed to take another look at Irsy Henry and open a second investigation into him. And of course, it was beginning to sound like a broken record. All of the instances of harassment and vandalism that Ursie had been consistently accused of without any sort of action or discipline levied against him. Even the fight Michael had reported, a fight that Ursie initiated and clearly got the upper hand and left him battered and bleeding. None of that was really any interest in terms of the investigation into Ursie. They'd already been down that road, and I can imagine it would be very difficult to discipline or terminate a police officer based on the accusations of a few seemingly disgruntled neighbors. They would need something more concrete, something that was a clear violation of LAPD policy, something that they could actually prove, and their investigation uncovered it finally it was revealed that Ursi had been using LAPD computers to run the license plates of all of his neighbors and he lied about it. He had gone up and down the street early on, shortly after moving into the neighborhood, and taking down the license plates of all the cars parked along the streets and driveways. Now, I believe that the neighbors had seen him doing something of the sort, but thought that he was checking up on possible suspicious cars, or in other words, They thought that Ursi was keeping an eye out for anything unusual or out of place along their street. They thought whatever he was doing was for the benefit and safety of their neighborhood. But it turned out to not be the case. He had run all their license plates using his access to the LAPD database. And in doing so, he accessed everyone's DMV records and gained unauthorized access to everybody's personal information. And it wasn't necessarily that he actually did that, but it was more of the fact that when he was questioned about it, he wasn't forthcoming about it. It was him lying about accessing their information that really led to the grounds for his termination. It wasn't snooping on his neighbors. It was the fact that he lied. According to court documents related to Ursi's later appeals regarding his termination, He admitted that he used the police department's computer system to obtain information regarding the Hamiltons and that this was not in connection with Ursi's duties as a police officer. He claimed that he used the computer systems when he first moved into the neighborhood and next door to the Hamiltons so that he could find out what their names were. He said that he and his wife were intending to gift a house plant to John and Melanie and he needed their names for the card that they were going to attach to that plant. He did acknowledge that before he used the LAPD system to obtain the Hamilton's names that he was aware that using the computers for his personal use was prohibited and it is actually illegal for him to do so. A violation of California Penal Code 502 which was on the books as a result of the California Comprehensive Computer Data Access and Fraud Act which protects individuals, businesses, and governmental agencies from tampering, interference, damage, and unauthorized access to lawfully created computer data and computer systems. The internal affairs detectives that had been assigned to investigate Ursi's alleged misconduct questioned him about some of the messages that were spray-painted on the fence along his property line on the side facing the Hamilton's yard, including the words PC-602, and PC-594, which refer to laws regarding trespassing and vandalism, respectively. And Ursi had denied having anything to do with those and other messages that were being spray-painted on the fence. He said he didn't even know it was there until he was shown pictures of the spray paintings. But then the detectives who had obtained surveillance video provided to them by the Hamiltons showed Ursi on the video which was footage of him standing nearby as the workers he hired who built the fence proceeded to spray paint the messages and the penal codes on the side facing the Hamilton's yard. It was at that point, Ursi altered his statement, ultimately admitting that he was out there when the fence was being built and perhaps it was he who suggested that those messages be painted on the fence. In all, 10 charges were brought against Ursi, and it was the task of the LAPD's Board of Rights to hold a hearing to adjudicate the charges, which was a very lengthy hearing. The administrative records involving the case consisted of 23 volumes totaling 3,300 pages. There were 29 witnesses called and 62 pieces of evidence presented in the case. During the hearing, Ursi remained evasive about his involvement with the messages painted on the fence facing the Hamilton's yard. At first, he again denied knowing how those messages got on the fence, but then later altered his testimony and said that he may have suggested it to his workers. Eventually, when his own attorney asked him why he was resistant to answering the questions regarding the fence, he fully admitted to instructing his workers to painting those messages on it. The Board of Rights found Ursi guilty on four out of the ten counts levied against him. They found him not guilty on the remaining six. He was found guilty on count one, which was this. Between June 1, 2003 and April 10th, 2005, while off duty, Ursi on numerous occasions inappropriately engaged in behavior meant to harass and intimidate or otherwise disturb the peace of the Hamilton family. He was found guilty on count six, which was between June 1st, 2003 and April 10th, 2005. While off duty, Ursi engaged in behavior that brought discredit to the Los Angeles Police Department. Ursi was found guilty on count seven, which was between January 1st, 2001 and May 4th, 2005. Ursi, while on duty, inappropriately accessed the department's computer for non duty related activities, and he was found guilty on count 10, which was between March 24, 2005, and May 4, 2005. Ursi, while on duty, made misleading statements to Sergeant Blackstone and Detective Martin, the two internal affairs investigators who were conducting their official investigation into Ursi's behavior. When it came time for the penalty phase of the hearing, five colleagues testified on behalf of Ursi's character. One lieutenant and one sergeant said that despite the sustained allegations, they would take Ursi back as a police officer. And three captains also testified to his character, but all saying that in light of the sustained allegations, they would not take him back as an officer. So finally, on October 28th, 2006, more than five years after Ersie and Sharon Henry moved into the neighborhood, the board unanimously recommended that Ersie Henry be removed as an officer of the Los Angeles Police Department. When making the recommended penalty, the board stated in part, It is important to note that these events involving the Hamiltons and Ersie Henry were ongoing for five years and involved a complex neighbor dispute. The board noted the fact that Mr. John Hamilton, in this case, as well as neighbor Michael Neron, could perhaps be considered, and were by this board, considered the provocateurs. Now, Dreamers, it is worth mentioning that many people don't believe that John Hamilton or Michael Neron did anything to provoke Irsy Henry, but that's what the board decided that they found was a possibility in this case. However, the board did find that Ersey Henry, as a police officer of nearly 20 years, should have recognized that his off-duty behavior discredited the police department. The board also found that Count 10, the one where Ersey made misleading statements to internal and investigators, was his most serious offense. It stated in part, The misleading statements in this proceeding and during prior interviews strike at the heart of the department's core values of integrity in all we say and do. This board will not tolerate a lack of integrity and expected Officer Henry to be upfront and forthright during the initial interview and subsequent interview and his testimony. The board believed that Officer Henry was in fact misleading. On November 14, 2006, then-LAPD Chief William Bratton adopted the board's recommendation to terminate Ursi Henry from the force. And according to John, you know, he would insist that this was not a thing that they expected or wanted. All they wanted was for Ursi to leave them alone. They probably didn't think that this would happen. After everything Ursi had gotten away with up to that point, they were likely under the impression that Ursi was untouchable. But once he got into that physical tussle with Michael Naron, it seemed as though Ursi's boss and the LAPD began taking what was going on more seriously. And the fact that Ursi lied about accessing the neighbor's personal information, that was all on him. That was Ursi Henry's fault. He was technically not fired for anything that he did to any of the neighbors, not even that assault on Michael the LAPD wasn't even taking what the neighbors had been reporting seriously. However, even though Ursi's termination was all his own doing, he was most likely going to place most, if not all, the blame on all of his neighbors for causing him to lose his job. And those neighbors, you know, I believe them when they say that they didn't intend or have any desire for him to get fired. If anything, That was going to make Ursi even more angry towards them than ever before. Because it was clear that Ursi hated all of them. And how was he going to be towards them now? Because they're still neighbors. It's just now he has no job. And he's going to hold all of them responsible. When word got around that Ursi had lost his job, the neighbor started thinking, okay... So now what's he going to do? He's no longer obligated to conduct himself in any manner consistent with his role and responsibilities as a police officer. Not that he had been, but now he doesn't even have that holding him back. Yeah, technically he is supposed to follow the law like every other regular member of the community, but he wasn't abiding by that before while he was a cop. What's it going to be like now that he's not a cop? They were worried because they're thinking if he thought he could do whatever he wanted to do and act any way he wanted to act because he was a police officer, he had been investigated and he was completely exonerated of any wrongdoing. All that time, he was conducting himself in a manner that didn't exactly cross any lines that was going to get him in any trouble or cost him his job. He was getting away with everything and managed to do so without crossing that line. His job, at the very least, kept Ursie from going completely off the deep end. But that caveat is no longer in place. His job is gone. What else does he have to lose? What's to stop him from crossing that line now? There was no doubt Ursie's hostility and anger was going to escalate, and the fear was very real that he was going to direct his anger towards those he felt were responsible for his termination from the LAPD. And because the Hamiltons lived right next door, it was becoming pretty clear to them that Ursi losing his job was causing some huge problems between him and his wife Sharon. The shouting arguments were so loud that neighbors even beyond the Hamiltons could overhear what was going on. She was angry, as she should be. She was angry that Ursi allowed himself to get carried away with this obsessiveness he had with harassing the others in the neighborhood, especially the Hamiltons, as they were the unfortunate ones that were directly next door. Sharon told him this needed to stop. I mean, what could he say? You know, she wasn't wrong. They have a family to raise, and this petty feuding costing him his job has put them in a precarious situation financially. I'd be mad too. The Hamiltons could soon hear things being smashed and broken as the arguing between Sharon and Ursi raged on. The upside of all of this was Ursi was too busy fighting with his wife to pay any attention to any of the neighbors. But they figured it wouldn't be long before he would just regroup and refocus his attention back on all of them eventually. And Ursi, now that he was home all the time, was a constant presence. And unfortunately, it was all directed towards the Hamiltons. Every single time they glanced out their front door or their window or the backsliding door, they could see Ursi standing on the side of the fence, staring directly at their house. Every single time they left the house, he was right there watching In order to avoid him, they tried to quietly slip in and out of the house every time they came and went, but it was nearly impossible because he was constantly outside watching. Watching their every move. Eventually, Ursi went beyond just harassing and intimidating John and Melanie at home. He began following them in his vehicle as they drove theirs. Every time they left to go run errands or to go shopping, he was right behind them. He'd pull up next to them or in front of them and just stare them down to make sure that they knew that he was watching them. He wanted the Hamiltons to know that he was keeping tabs on every move they made. This had now become a case of stalking, but Ursi was making no effort to hide the fact that he was doing it. And Ursi's harassment was not only being directed at John and Melanie, but he also began targeting their daughter, which I had alluded to earlier when I referenced the court documents. When he would be staring at her outside, he would glance over and Ursie would start making disgusting and lewd actions towards her. And this crossed a line for the Hamiltons. To make any sort of sexual gestures towards their daughter was more than they were willing to put up with. So in an effort to prevent Ursie from being able to consistently stare into their yard and into their home, the Hamiltons erected a huge tarp that extended at least six or eight feet higher than the fence that divided their properties. Once they had that tarp in place, not only was Ursi no longer able to peer into their yard and into their windows, his floodlights were no longer visible from their bedrooms either. But the tarp, even though it provided the Hamiltons with a sense of peace and privacy, it really wasn't going to be a permanent solution to the bigger issue they were dealing with because Ursi Henry simply wasn't going to be deterred by a piece of tarp. Ursi quickly zeroed in on the fact that he was really getting into John Hamilton's head. He knew that little by little he was getting to him and he knew he had him with his back up against the wall. Ursi also knew that John's biggest weakness and biggest fear was something happening to his family. John's work had him gone from the home pretty regularly for long hours. He also traveled for work frequently. So John obviously couldn't be there all the time to keep watch over his home and his wife and kids, which was a huge worry. But there really wasn't much he could do about it. The Hamiltons began to notice that when John was out of town on business, it was clear that Ursie knew it, and this would cause him to increase the frequency and intensity of his obsessive harassment of Melanie and the children. He would follow her and the kids to their school, again making his presence known. It was his goal to make sure that the Hamiltons lived in constant fear. And for John, the stress of the incessant stalking and harassing behaviors, it was pushing him to a breaking point. It was clear that Ursie was doing anything and everything that he could think of to try and provoke John into snapping and fighting back and hopefully to cause John to violate the terms of the restraining order, which would enable Ursie to file charges on him. He would stand at the edge of John's driveway and start yelling and taunting and spitting on the sidewalk in front of his house. Ursie just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Until finally, one day, John was outside washing his car when he finally lost it. Ursi was coming towards his property, saying and doing his usual harassing things. So John just took his hose and flicked some water on Ursi, which caused him to just start charging at John. They got into each other's face, shouting and arguing, when all of a sudden Ursi grabbed a small canister of mace or pepper spray and sprayed John in the face with it. John immediately drew back. His face felt like it was on fire. He contacted the sheriff, and this would be the first time they actually had something tangible to work with here. They never had been able to prove any wrongdoing on Ersie's part up until this point, but now this encounter not only caused John to have physical indications that he was attacked, it was all caught on John's surveillance camera. By spraying John in the face with whatever chemical was in his little canister, well, that was a felony. So Ursi was arrested and charged with the assault on John, and he was going to go to trial. Ursie would take the stand in his own defense, and when he did, he insisted that it was not pepper spray that he used on John. He said it was cologne, and the jury found him not guilty of assaulting John. I'm not quite sure what the reasoning behind their verdict was, but it is very likely that John was portrayed as the aggressor. As the two men were yelling, he was the first to take physical action against Ursi by spraying him with the water from his hose. I can easily see a jury viewing this as petty feuding between neighbors. And whatever the case, even if Ursi was provoking and provoking and provoking, it seems like he was at least able to, on at least one possibly more occasions, pushed John into being the first to lash out. And no matter what Ursi does, as long as he isn't the one to throw the first punch, he's going to be able to make a case for his innocence by painting John as the aggressor. And every time Ursi managed to sidestep getting into any serious legal trouble over the ongoing dispute with his neighbors, it seemed to embolden him even more making him wanting to take things to the next level. It was like his thinking was this. You got me arrested. You had me go to trial. I was found not guilty. And now I'm going to make you pay for putting me through that. Eventually, Ersi began issuing John a very ominous verbal threat. He told him and made it clear. He said, I'm going to kill you. You hear me? I'm going to kill you. He said it to John every chance that he had. John would be doing yard work and he'd hear Ursi's voice. I'm going to kill you. He told John that he wouldn't see it coming. It'll be when he least expects it. And Ursi would make that gesture running his hand across his neck indicating like taking a knife across the throat. The fear was very real. Because in all this time, in all the dealings with Ursi... There was never a time when he actually scaled back on any of his actions or behaviors. He had never slowed down and he never backed off. Every single time something happened between himself and one of the neighbors, the next incident was always up a notch. That was Ursi's only direction in this. He increased, he heightened, he intensified, he escalated. There was never a moment of de-escalation. Finally, Ursi directed his rage towards that barrier that the Hamiltons had erected in their yard to keep his prying eyes and floodlights out of their house. Ursie had taken a large knife and began hacking away at the tarp, shredding it into pieces. Okay, so again the Hamiltons are like, here's another chance to stick it to him coming into their yard and tearing down their tarp violated the terms of their restraining order. So the Hamiltons, despite Ursi having been able to get away with just about everything he had done to them, because remember, he wasn't fired from the LAPD because of his actions involving them or the other neighbors. He was fired for giving misleading statements to internal affairs. But despite Ursi getting away with everything, the Hamiltons continued to report him. And good on them because I don't know if I would have had the same kind of tenacity to keep trying after getting nowhere for years. They could have just given up and they could have been like, forget it. I'm out of here and packed up and left. But they weren't going to give Ersi that power over their lives. They were there first. And this had once been a place where every single neighbor on the block was a best friend. They had been like one big family. Ursi Henry moved in and changed everything, and nothing had been the same since. Well, the Hamiltons reported Ursi's destruction of their tarp, and lo and behold, this umpteenth time was a charm. Ursi was arrested for violating the restraining order, and when he went before the judge, he finally looked at Ursi's actions for what they were the judge understood that Ursie had taken a large knife and violently slashed at their tarp. Not because he was pissed off at the tarp, but because he was pissed off at the Hamiltons. The judge viewed it as a violent act that was meant to send an ominous message to the Hamiltons that it was truly beyond just a frivolous case of vandalism. To the judge, it was very telling of Ursie Henry's feelings towards his neighbors. And I agree with that observation. Ersie was continuing to walk that thin line between the actions he was taking against the Hamiltons and the actions he would actually like to be taking against them. The judge levied a fine of several thousand dollars and told him that this was going to be the last time he walks out of this court without being sentenced to jail. Show up again as a result of another restraining order violation the judge made it clear, next time would be jail time. And that was really the first time that the neighbors saw that the situation finally had an effect on Ersey. They could see that he felt the defeat. He finally began to withdraw. And slowly the neighbors, especially the Hamiltons, felt as though they could breathe just a little bit of a sigh of relief. Ursi must have taken a step back and took stock of what had become of his life. He lost a 20-year-long career with the LAPD. He's in these constant legal battles, in and out of court, and it's now reached the point where any little thing that he does to the Hamiltons is going to land him in jail. And if you're wondering if this has taken the ultimate toll on Ersie's marriage to Sharon, you bet it did. She finally packed up her stuff and their son and left. And the Henrys made no attempt to hide the marital discord from the rest of the neighbors. They saw the fighting, and they saw her packing, and they saw her leaving. But to the neighbors, they weren't quite sure how Sharon's departure would affect which direction Ercey was going to go from that point forward. Sharon was never, ever part of the problem. If anything, they felt as though she played a role in helping to keep him somewhat in check. Even though it didn't seem like it, they were pretty certain that if she hadn't been in the picture, things would have been way worse. So now that she was gone, the neighbors started thinking, Okay, is it only going to be a matter of time before Ursi really loses it? He's there, in that house, alone with nothing but his own thoughts. He could explode at any moment. As the fact that Ursi certainly blames them for his life having gone into this nosedive that he can't seem to pull out of. The big fear, of course, was the possibility of causing some real harm to any one of them. And this whole thing could end very, very tragically. But it didn't. There was never so much as another peep from Ersie Henry. As a matter of fact, he sort of just disappeared. The neighbors never saw it happen. He moved out. They think most likely in the middle of the night when no one would be watching. The house was sold, yet there was never a for sale sign erected in the yard. The neighbors got word that he had moved to someplace in Los Angeles, and that was the end of that. Now that the house was empty, it was akin to a dark cloud over this neighborhood having dissipated. Giving way for this once social and fun loving block to finally get back to the way things used to be. The moment the coast was clear of Ursie Henry, the Hamiltons hosted a party, and the overwhelming sentiment shared over and over again was that it finally felt like old times. Good friends, good people, good neighbors, good memories. Ersie Henry had almost destroyed that. He single-handedly took away everything that the neighbors had once enjoyed about living on this particular block, in this particular neighborhood, in this little corner of Altadena, California. Having him gone, they were able to regain what he had essentially stolen from them for all those years. In totality, the issues with Ersie Henry spanned about seven years, having moved into the neighborhood in 2001 and finally moving out sometime in 2008. The neighbors did actually see him one more time after he had moved. They had gotten together for a happy hour at a local pub one afternoon when Michael Naron got up to take care of the check. He encountered Ersie Henry inside the pub. It was just right there in front of his face and Ursi just stared stared him down Michael went back to his table and told the others but that was the extent of the encounter so the possibility of Ursi still being in the area in close proximity to the neighborhood it was there but there was no way of knowing or keeping tabs on where exactly Ursi was so all the neighbors could do was just keep moving forward and hope for the best and try not to allow their lives to be kept under siege, but without ever forgetting to look over their shoulder every now and again. Ersie Henry did appeal his termination, looking to be reinstated as an LAPD officer. It wasn't challenging that he was guilty of the four offenses, But he believed the board abused its discretion by imposing the penalty of termination by failing to follow its own rules against receiving any opinion evidence concerning the appropriate penalty for his offenses and failed to properly refer to the standard penalties and that his penalty was excessive. But the appeals court disagreed. The Board of Rights made it clear that Ursi's off-duty behavior brought discredit to the LAPD. That was another way of saying that his conduct hurt the public's perception of the police department. And furthermore, the board took into consideration Ursi's lack of integrity and honesty, and that these shortcomings go to the heart of a police officer's service to the public. The court said Even if not criminal in nature, acts of a police officer that tend to impair the public's trust in his department can be harmful to the department's. Efficiency and morale. Thus, courts have long recognized that while off duty conduct of employees is generally of no legal consequence to their employees, the public expects peace officers to be above suspicion of violation of the very laws they are sworn to enforce. Historically, peace officers have been held to a higher standard than other public employees in part because they are alone the guardians of peace and security of the community and the efficiency of our whole system designed for the purpose of maintaining law and order depends upon the extent to which such officers perform their duties and are faithful to the trust reposed in them. Whereas here, a police officer makes misleading statements in response to questions by law enforcement officials, the officer's ability to serve the public is greatly impaired. However, if an officer is found guilty by the board of making misleading statements to police investigators, as Irsy Henry was in this case, that finding may be discoverable by criminal defendants for purposes of impeaching the officer's credibility as a witness. In light of the higher standard imposed on the officers while off-duty and the importance of maintaining the public's trust and confidence in the honesty and integrity of police officers, we cannot find that the board abused its discretion by terminating Henry. We adopt a statement made by the Superior Court, which applies to the appeals court as well. Although this court may have chosen a different penalty in the first instance, it cannot substitute its judgment for that of the administrative agency. Ersie Henry has failed to show that the administrative decision is not within the discretion vested in the Board of Rights and ultimately the chief of police. And where Ursi Henry is today, your guess is as good as mine. As far as I can tell, he has made no further contact with the neighbors he once terrorized in Altadena, California. There is a movie based on the events of this story entitled Lakeview Terrace, starring Samuel L. Jackson as Ursi Henry, although some of the story has been fictionalized and dramatized and all the names of the players in this case were changed in the movie and that brings this 118th episode of california dreaming to a close i did post the question in the facebook group about bad neighbors and i wanted to share some of your stories here on this episode but due to time constraints i'm not going to include it here on this episode but rather I'll put up an addendum to this in another day or so and we can hear some of your neighbor horror stories. I would like to encourage you to come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there that we discuss the cases that we cover, we share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but any other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories, posts about your pets, funny memes, and yes, the woman yelling at the cat memes are still welcome, very much so. So please come on over and share. You can also go to the show's Facebook page and like the page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. As for birthday shoutouts, there is one that I missed last week. Brad D. celebrated his birthday on November 20th, and it looks like I got a little bit ahead of myself and did the rest of November in that last episode. So in the next one, we'll get into our December birthdays. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Dicksaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an amazing roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment gaming and social media so visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com you will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. there are a couple of new california jimmy designs you can get your coffee mugs t-shirts hoodies all sorts of stuff to represent your favorite true crime podcast again that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com Thank you again so much for listening. This week here in the United States, we are celebrating our Thanksgiving holiday. So if you do celebrate, I want to wish you all a very fun and happy holiday. You all better behave yourselves and eat all the good foods. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.
1: This is Mike Morford. You may know me as co host of the true crime podcast Criminology. I'd like to invite you to listen to one of my other podcasts called The Murder of My Family. In each episode of The Murder of My Family, I discuss a murder case and include an interview with a family member of the victim to discuss the aftermath of the murder in an attempt to view these crimes from a unique perspective, one that we don't usually experience. Some of the cases I cover are well known, while others you've probably never heard of. I currently have dozens of episodes available for you to binge on, including episodes about the Golden State Killer, the Delphi murders, and the Colonial Parkway murders, just to name a few. Here's a small sample of the kind of conversations you'll hear on the murder of my family. Mike, at the risk of sounding like every other proud big brother around the world, Kathy was an amazing person. She was 27 years old at the time of her death, and she would already accomplished a great deal. One point that I wanted to get across was that the victims whose murders I discuss aren't just statistics or a blurb in a news report. These were real people whose murders affected their family members, forever changing their lives. It's important to know that they too are victims. For me, knowing that he has a family and that he gets to see his kids every day and that he gets to be there for his kids growing up, like, it's not fair. You know, my dad did everything he was supposed to do as a father and as a husband. And
0: someone decided that night that he didn't get to do that anymore. It's frustrating knowing that, you know, he'll get to see his kids grow up and graduate and get married and do all that. And my dad doesn't get to do any of those things. He doesn't get to see his, he has three granddaughters now that he'll never see and they'll never meet their grandfather and it's just, it's not fair.
1: New episodes of The Murder My Family come out every other Saturday and you can find The Murder My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode.